Welcome to CPP Chat, a sometimes week look at what's going on in the world of C++, chatting with guests from the community, and we'll get to this week's guest in a moment, but first we need to import a disclaimer. Thank you, Phil. Uh, the disclaimer this week, persons entering this building do so at their own risk. Guests and their visitors or employees enter and use these premises at their own risk. Neither the owners nor their representatives or agents are liable for loss or damage to any guest, visitor, employee, or any person's property, nor for injury or death of any guest, visitor, employee, or any person, whether such loss or damage to property or injury or death is it as a result of the negligence of the owners and or their representatives or agents or not. So, John, I think you've got the, the wrong type of building there. Oh, okay. We're talking about building code today. Okay. Uh, so who do we have on to talk about building code? Well, probably enough, um, we were going to have someone else, but due to unforeseen circumstances, we've been hunting around for a, a last-minute um, uh, substitution, and uh, Ben Craig has um, very charitably agreed to to come on. So um, I'm sure he's done plenty of preparation for this episode, so <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're going to have to play it by ear a bit. <laughs> so fa- thanks, Ben, for coming on at such short notice. Um. Yeah, Ben, and uh, I do want to talk about, I, I saw you at uh, in Kona. We'll talk a little bit about your thoughts about that. But before we get that, we should probably kind of do a wrap-up of uh, what's going around in the world of conferences. Uh, so, what is going on? C++ on C videos are all up? Are they all up? They are all up, but uh, one, well, two, actually. The, the, the one that uh, Hannah did remotely... Uh, we also had some technical difficulties there, and we decided in the end not to to publish that one. Okay. Uh, Jason Turner's one also had some some technical issues. Oh. And because he was running demos, and they, they didn't get recorded, uh, he, he's going to have to redo the demos and re-record them, uh, which we we may get oh. to do at some point. Um, so we're not rolling it out yet, but that, that, they're the only two that are not there. Everything okay. else is up. So. So how many how many is that? How many is up then? Um, that's a good question. I don't have a ready answer, but it's around, <laughs> it's around 30, uh, from, from memory. All right. High 20s, uh, maybe. Okay. So what else is going on? Um, ACCU registrations open there in April for people keeping score. They're also going to have a special two day conference in Belfast in November. And that is the two days that follow the committee meeting. So the committee meeting in Belfast, if you're thinking of attending that, you stay around another couple of days and you get to do a conference as well. And for people who are really keeping track, if you've been wanting to go to Europe and want to get the best C++ bang for your buck, this is the opportunity. Go to Belfast the, the, for a week at, at the committee meeting. The next week, do two days of ACCU, pop over to Berlin do three days of C++ now, pop over to Poland, and go to Code Dive. So you're, if you only want to you know, minimize your crosses of the Atlantic Ocean and get as much C++ as you can, boy, have we got a deal for you. <laughs> Although just a small correction there. Uh, oh, I, think, sorry. I think you meant meeting C++ just after the ACCU conference. You said C++ now. I'm sorry. I got C++ now on the brain. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a That's second. But yes, meeting C++. Pop over to Berlin. We are not moving C++ now to Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> not this year. 
<laughs> not this year. Uh, no, you need to see plus plus, uh, in Berlin and then, uh, and then code dive in Poland. Ah, so anyway, what's next on the list? Uh, Embo is in March. Registration's open. Uh, we're not very far away. It's March 14, 17. So that's just a couple of weeks away. Um, very uh, less than that. Uh, I guess. Yeah. Next week, I think. Yeah. Next week. Okay. Um, C plus plus. Now we have, uh, announced, I shouldn't say announced. We've notified the speakers about which ones have been accepted. Uh, we haven't made that public yet, but we are right on the cusp of that. Uh, it'll be a little while before we get the full schedule up, but we'll have a list of speakers and topics uh, pretty soon. Um, and then we'll actually start tweeting all those. Uh, the the thing that the, the, that for potential attendees or or attendees um, you should know about is Now, we just put up the promo video, which is cool to watch. So go to uh, cppnow.org, uh, right on the homepage, watch the promo video. It's, um, it's a lot of fun. It's cool. It's just uh, attendees talking about why they love this particular conference and why they think it's different from all the other conferences. So, of course, I'm in love with it. Um, and then in May, uh, right after C++ Now!, is uh, the Tel Aviv Conference Core C++. That's uh, 14 through 17. Um, and then in June is the Italian Conference uh, with Andre Alexandrescu keynoting. Um, and then in September is CppCon. And I'm really excited about that. And the reason is that last weekend, uh, I went to the grand opening of Gaylord Rockies, which is the new home of CppCon, it was actually open and, and doing business in December, but this was the grand opening, and they invited me uh, and also uh, Karen and Mike, who we've been working with, uh, putting the conference on, to spend the weekend, um, you know, showing off a bunch of stuff. We got to have a massage and all sorts of things, but it's uh, it's an amazing site, and we are going to have so much space that this was our issue with the maiden bower. You know, we didn't leave there because we hated it. We loved the maiden bower, but we outgrew it and we just didn't have the space. So we're going to be able to do uh, a lot of cool stuff. If you're at all interested in this, go to cpporg. Sorry, cppcon.org because I've I've just put up the trip report. I've got some photos and stuff like that up there. Uh, a lot of details on this. So um, really excited. Uh, can't wait to announce. We've uh, just all sorts of cool plans. Um, they will be rolled out over time. But this is where my head's been because because I've been there and and just seen all the potential of things we're going to do. The, one of the biggest differences between the old venue and the new venue is that we can get everybody in the same hotel. Instead of having you know six different hotels all across Bellevue, it's a single hotel. It's where the conference is. You literally don't have to go outdoors in order to go from your room to the conference. You just walk down the corridor, uh, down the elevator, and then down the corridor, and you're right there. And that's really convenient when we have sessions that go till 10 o'clock at night. Um, and um, if you want to take a break in the middle of the day and go up and get a nap, it's, you're just minutes from your room, take a nap, and then, you know, be recharged and come back. So anyway, that's where my head's at, talking about all that stuff. Um, so let's talk about, uh, well, let's talk about your, your adventures in Kona, uh, Ben. Um, I know a little bit about what you were doing there, but tell, uh, tell us what you were doing in Kona and, uh, and then your thoughts about how, how that went. Uh, so uh, the 
two big things that I went to Kona for were uh, some of my freestanding work and uh, modules. Uh, so for my freestanding work, I've had papers going for a while. I was hoping to, at the last minute, finally get some uh, library stuff in for uh, C++20. I got good review feedback on that, but that means that it's another iteration. So uh, it'll hopefully hit 23. Okay, but, probably hey, most of our audience knows, yeah. but what the heck is freestanding? Yes. Uh, so in the standard, it says that freestanding is supposed to be uh, the subset of uh, C++ that can run uh, without an OS uh, present. And so I've been trying to expand on, on the library side. I've been trying to expand that to include more things. Uh, right now, the freestanding library has very little in it. So, uh, so freestanding is, is not something you've invented. It's been in the standard. Yes, and since it, it was been in the standard, in the C++ standard, and in the C standard, even. So, since it's been in the standard, uh, every time a, a proposal comes in, people think about the implications for freestanding, and they a new library comes in, and they very carefully divide. This is the freestanding part, and this. You're smiling, Ben. Am I not right? <laughs> uh, every now and then, someone will look at it and say, "Oh, yeah, we we should think about freestanding here." But uh, it, m for the most part, it's stayed how it is with a few exceptions in particular when new did you say exceptions library I didn't think exceptions were in. <laughs> <laughs> when new core language features go in a lot of times there's a little bit of library support that goes with it and most often that's when freestanding gets remembered uh but for the most part people weren't just adding anything to freestanding that they could now, since I've been over there and kicking, you know, the anthill with regards to freestanding, people are remembering that it exists and saying, okay, well, this new header, maybe this new header should be freestanding. Yeah, and, you, uh, and you've been the hero on this because it has just been kind of languishing, people not paying too much attention to it, and you've been the real champion in causing people to, to recognize that, yeah, it, it takes a little bit of thought. And the surprising thing is that 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 what you'll have is – you know, some header that you think, well, that can't possibly have anything to do with an OS. We don't need an OS in that. Except, well, except that includes this, which includes this, which includes uh, something like locale or something like that. So if it touches a string, it's likely to touch locale. And then pretty soon, something that you wouldn't think has anything to do with an OS is actually dependent in some indirect way on something that depends on something that depends on something that depends on the OS. Is that kind of the problem you're dealing with? That, that's a lot of the problem that I'm dealing with. So uh, an example that ended up surprising me that Odin Holmes brought up was uh, for a while I had A2I in freestanding, and then he brought it to my attention that A2I calls is space, and is space has to look at locale stuff because there's locale-aware space stuff. And once you pull that in, that's a huge global thing that has to worry about thread local storage. And so, <laughs> yeah, A2I is now not in my paper for being freestanding. But, yeah, there's all sorts of crazy dependencies all over the place that have to be taken care of. And at the same time, you want to bring as much in as you can. So right, sure. uh, string view is something that a lot of people would like to have in freestanding because, I mean, it's a pointer and a size or two pointers depending upon how you look at it. There's no yeah. allocations there. Right. But there are challenging things with string view in that there are range-checked interfaces, and those range-checked interfaces can throw uh, exceptions. 
the exceptions that they throw come from the std accept header. The std, all the exceptions that are in the std accept header, they all have constructors that take a std string. And we don't want to have std string in freestanding because allocating memory is normally associated with having an OS. All right. So it's, yeah, it's a tangle. And it's the kind of thing that if, I, I was actually going to ask you about this. Would it make sense to have a freestanding study group where the real point of it is that everybody making a proposal, any proposal has to go through the freestanding study group just for you to look at it. And you might look at it and just say, well, there's no way this is freestanding. Do what the heck you want. Or you might look at it and say, well, wait a minute. Three quarters of this could be freestanding. Can we make it in two headers, the the freestanding part and the non-freestanding part in different headers? Um, have, have you thought about a study group or is that just crazy? I've thought about it a little bit. Uh, in theory, SG14 could be that group, but uh, that, that the SG14 is the low latency group uh, yeah. dealing with finance, embedded, and games. games yeah. uh, but it could also be something that goes into its own study group. The problem is that then you need to funnel everything through it at some point. So it's it's tricky. Uh, maybe at some point, but may, hopefully uh, my, my hope is to spread the knowledge enough of what makes something freestanding versus not so that I don't have to be the only person, you know, being the judge of what's freestanding or not with right. everyone else kind of going along and saying, yeah, you're nay. Right. I don't think there was a lack of understanding. I think it was more just people weren't aware. You know, it just wasn't in – there's so many There's so many things you're trying to juggle all the time, and um, it's easy to overlook the implications of this, particularly in a situation where, you know, for a lot of people, they're never writing any code that they, they don't have an OS. And so it's just not a, a mind space thing, right? Right. Uh, and people don't realize that some things are difficult in an OS-less environment or – on a GPU or whatnot. So uh, thread local storage is the one that comes up a lot uh, there. Uh, some people will say, oh, well, why don't you just store all the thread local variables at the base of your stack? Well, I may not control the stack. I may be writing a driver in Windows or Linux or something like that, and I'm just running some code on whatever stack they give me. I don't control the base of the stack. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing that surprises people. And then you have to go and root out all the places that use thread local storage. Mm -hmm. uh, and even things like terminate, it is not easy to terminate in an environment where your C runtime, well, sure, they've got a function called abort, but does the person that wrote the C runtime know how to spell stop everything on my weird embedded chip? They probably don't. I mean, they can try to dereference null, or they can try to make the Unix syscall uh, for exit, but that's not a standardized or a C++ or C standardized entry point. So those are the kinds of things I'm juggling and trying to figure out how to make it work in a way that is uh, palatable to the uh, WG21 uh, group. So is that group... Um, what? What kind of receptivity do you get? I, I'm assuming that most of the people on there aren't dealing with freestanding. I mean, that's not their day-to-day -day world. But but what is their attitude when you bring this up? Are they saying, well, yeah, it's, it's not a very big part of the market? Or are they saying, well, you guys just have unrealistic demands? Or or are they receptive and saying, well, let's try to make it work for you too? I mean, where 
what are you getting? Uh, so there's a wide range of things. So uh, there's people are uh, sympathetic with the use case. Uh, there are a lot of people that uh, go to these meetings that have done embedded stuff in the past or are working on uh, working on video cards or. Uh, th- th- but but people understand and appreciate the use case uh, at least superficially. Uh, there's a fair amount of resistance to the idea of avoiding or uh, not having exceptions. Uh, exceptions are the way you deal with errors in C++, and a lot of the library relies on them. Uh, I'm not – there's – I don't know if I've conveyed uh, appropriately to that group the implementation difficulties uh, of exceptions in these environments. Uh, so you can say, yes, we want them. Everyone needs to have them, but just saying that doesn't make them appear. <laughs> uh, and the status quo is that people turn them off. So to a large degree, I'm trying to meet with the status quo. Now, that's on the core language side. So I've got two big papers floating. One of them is on the core language side, and that's for moving features. And then I've got the, uh, the library paper, which is adding things. People seem to be pretty receptive to adding stuff to the freestanding library. There's been questions, okay, of how I deal with things like string view, where some uh, where some methods throw. But in general, people are fine with adding std sort uh, to freestanding because that doesn't have any operating system requirements. People are fine with adding tuple and move, uh, which neither one of those were in freestanding before. Uh, but yeah, on the core language side. There's a lot of reasonable concerns about fracturing the language, making subsets, uh, right, right, because right. yeah, we, we've sort Everybody's of been down this path this. before, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. so, so, so uh, it sounds like a lot of your work is education to explain to people they're not really resistant to it. You're not arguing; you're just explaining. Look, here's the implications, and here's why is space is an issue and <laughs> things right. like that. Right. They just surprise people. Um, are you, have you looked at, um, the static exceptions proposals? Um, are you as excited about that as I am? I, I know the answer to that. Nobody can be as excited about them as I am. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Phil and my, and, and my names are both in that paper. We, we helped Herb with that paper. And yes, I'm excited about it because that looks like a way to where we can get the exception programming model with uh, costs that are much more similar to uh, return code uh, programming. Uh, so it, it does open things up a lot. It means that maybe in the future we could have a stood vector in an embedded environment where, uh, sure, it doesn't use the default allocator. I have to provide it my own allocator so it knows where to get memory. But when you run out of space, it could throw a static exception. And all of this could happen with no cost, no reliance on an operating system. Uh, we're a ways from that future, but I see the path of how we could get there, assuming that we can get static exceptions. Uh, so, yeah. I'm, yeah, it, I'm so it, it excited fills in so many holes. And it was exactly what you said. It's the programming model. And the idea that 97% of us will be using one programming model that works really well and, you know, handles all the stuff, and 3% of us just can't use that model. Well, what does that mean? That means that the library, you know, any code that's 
designed to be used everywhere, can't use that model. And yet that's the model. I mean, it's like, that's what we want people to do. Exceptions are just such a nice, clean way to write code. Um, but there are people who are in situations where, no, there's too much overhead. And it just violates the whole uh, idea of C++ that you don't pay for what you don't use. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, we've talked about static exceptions on this show before. And anybody anybody knows I get excited about this. So <laughs> I'm sure we'll talk about them again. The uh, direction group, the, the WG21 direction group did ask for – people to provide some research about the costs of various error handling mechanisms. So in my copious amounts of free time, one of the things I've been working on is uh, actually getting size estimates or size measurements for how much the different error handling mechanisms cost. And so I've got things broken down by this is the one-time cost, so the first throw that you have. Uh, this is how much it costs. Here's how much the second one costs. And so I've been working on that, and I've got my initial batch of data, and I've been working on typing up what the blog post looks like. Uh, and then earlier today, there was an announcement by the Visual Studio team about how they made X64 exceptions so much smaller. And it's like, yes, that's awesome, but great, now I have to go and collect more data because, I mean, it's like I've got all this sitting here of how how huge they are, and, well, now you've gone and fixed it, and crap. <laughs> But that was that's talking about dynamic, right? Yes, the dynamic that's, exceptions. And so yeah, initially right. I was going to do uh, – write a little bit of hand-coded assembly as kind of a, a sketchy. This is kind of what herbceptions would look like. Uh, but as it turns out, there's enough extra data in general that hangs out in other sections that I need to measure that I don't think I could get an, an accurate uh, representation of what – static exception costs are. I mean, we could look and say, this is how much stood expected costs, and it'll be kind of like that, but we can't say it'll be exactly like that, because uh, at least on X64, the hope is that static exceptions would use the carry flag uh, right. to indicate whether it's an error or uh, a normal return value. And so that requires different assembly than what stood expected does. Right, but has the but has the upside of no extra memory. Right. Yeah, and interesting. The the Swift error handling model already does exactly that. It's uh, it's based on very similar principles and has the same optimizations, and they've been using that for a few years. So although it's a different language and not everything is going to apply the same, we we do have some data from from their experience that gives us uh, some ideas. Yeah, we should we should. Uh... Uh, you know, steal steal good ideas from other languages on every opportunity. Um, you know, I used to work at a company that had its own name for not invented here. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, let's switch gears and talk about modules. Or were there were there other things you wanted to talk about from Kona that uh, uh, that you well, were either I mean, happy about, delighted about, or uh, or less? Cover so? teams are in. I'm excited about that, but uh, okay. that that that's uh, that that wasn't my focus there. So I think uh, going on to modules is probably the next best thing to uh, to talk about. Okay. Uh, so, so what got voted in? Uh, so modules and coroutines got voted in. Those were the two big features, and that means that C plus plus twenty is shaping up to be huge, and uh, it's almost on par, maybe even exceeding what we got in C plus plus eleven. Uh, so. Yeah, we've got modules, we've got coroutines from previous meetings. We had contracts. Uh, 
let's see, we've got ranges, ranges we've got date time, we've got concepts. Uh, so yeah, 20 is huge in terms of all the stuff that's there. I think just about all the core language stuff you can even uh, prefix with CO and, and, and be okay. With modules, <laughs> you just call them uh, components and really make uh, John Lakos angry. So. <laughs> all right. So why is why is John angry about modules? Well, well, th- th- this this would be uh, that modules don't exactly do all the things that he wanted to do. Uh, so uh, one of the things I know that he mentioned on your show at one point is that he wanted to preserve the ability to have uh, distinct compilation to where you can just take all your CPP files and put one on each machine and have – all of your thousand CPP files, put one on each machine, make sure they all have access to the same headers, but Mm -hmm. then build them all in parallel uh, and not have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. And you might be able to get that with modules, but the current prototypes don't really allow that. Uh, So the... And and it's really tough to nail things down because uh, there's... A few prototype implementations, there's a lot of things that the standard allows, but there's a big gulf in between what the standard allows and what implementations actually do. So uh, the what the current implementations do for modules is when you import a module, uh, you need to have some artifact built for that module in advance. So uh, if you're implementation uh it's standard library if they just provided source for that uh and didn't have pre-built modules uh when you went to import uh stood core or vector or whatnot uh you would have to build the header for vector first to get the uh to get the binary module interface and then you could build your cpp file so it would no it's no longer trivially parallelizable it is uh, you have a directed acyclic graph for building things. Uh, now there's all sorts of caveats with that. Uh, so you can't just build all your CPP files in parallel. You have to build them in a specific order. So that way, uh, you you basically have to build your headers before you can import them. Well, but these things are deterministic. So they are. In other words, in other words. It's it's not embarrassingly parallelizable from a performance point of view, but what John is wanting to do from a correctness point of view still works. In other, in other words, you could yes. farm this out and have a whole bunch of machines, and they would all have to build their own version of the vector module or whatever, but it would work. In fact, it would work. Yes. One of the one of the things that we get from modules is that we don't have the one definition rule problems. It kind of makes those go away. Um, it, it helps a lot with that, yes. Yeah. And that's one of the exciting things about modules. So uh, my name is on a paper where we're sa- where, where uh, several people are saying modules have these problems, and I don't. I want to get the idea across that I like the end state that modules put us in. That is a wonderful end state to be in. I'm just personally, I'm worried about the transition path to get there because well, what are your concerns? Boy, is there a lot of things. Uh, so many build systems aren't equipped to handle this directed acyclic graph. Uh, 
So maybe compilers can help out there to where they uh, Clang has this thing called uh, implicit modules to where when you uh, import something, if it's not already built, it'll go and build it for you. Uh, and if you're just building on one machine, then that's great. Uh, if you are doing some distributed build, well, we've got some things to work out there. I think we can come up with something, but uh, that, that, that's still a bit of an open question, how to make distribution work if you are not equipped to deal with a directed acyclic graph. Or maybe the answer is just throw out all the build systems that can't handle that and actually move them to a better build system. And that may be the way for the future, and maybe that's how we improve the build universe because almost all of our all our build systems are terrible some of them are less terrible than others <laughs> uh so maybe this is how we uh improve the average quality of the build systems is basically by introducing a crisis uh and saying that all the bad build systems aren't going to work anymore so now you have to move to a good build system or a less bad build system uh, so, uh, we have a question that says, how C++ modules interact with ODR? They allow for different definitions and separate modules. So talk about the one definition rule and, and why does modules save us there? What is, what, it, why does that straighten out that problem for us? So the one definition rule, uh, says that for any given entity, you have to have exactly one definition of it. Uh, and there are some places where you can have multiple definitions, but they all have to match exactly. Uh, so like with inline functions, it is not allowable for an inline function to have one definition in one translation unit and a different definition in a different translation unit. Uh, so in other words, if, if, the only thing, uh, if the only place where something is defined is in a header, then I have 12 different CPP files that import that header or include that header. Uh, in the existing situation I'm talking about. Um, so we include that header, then it sounds like, well, I should be safe, unless perhaps the definition has a macro in it, and maybe I define the macro one way before calling include or before I have it include. And so I can have a situation where the exact same code, the exact same text is imported by two different CPP files, but it's not exactly the same code because the macro definition was slightly different, right? So that's where you get into the one definition rule problem. That, or you right. just do something stupid, like create two separate headers. They both define the same, you know, the, the same inline function defined differently in two separate headers. Now that's just crazy. So, well, nobody you say would it's crazy that. happens all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, let, let, let me name, uh, you know, give my function a very unoriginal name and, and just use it in my CPP file. And someone else does the same thing in their CPP file. And oops, yeah. Okay. But the idea now is that with a module, it doesn't matter when you say, I want to import this module. It doesn't matter what your macro state is, right? The, the importing of a module is importing something that will be exactly the same no matter what macros you set before you did the import uh correct so for full-on regular modules so this is where you do import and a name with uh no quotes or angle brackets or anything so import and a name no macros will go in to that module and no macros will come out of that module it will introduce uh declarations but yeah it is sealed away from 
uh, macros. Uh, I think that's with all import statements, actually. So the, the place where macros uh, get a little funny is you can have modules when you do a hash include uh, of some entity. So hash include my file. Uh, if that is a macro, if, if that is a module, then uh, macros won't go into it, but macros will come out of it. Uh, so that's going to be useful for unit test frameworks in particular. There's a bunch of other use cases, but unit test frameworks tend to be pretty heavy on the macros in order to just make life easier. So like your expect macros or your macro to stamp out a unit test or something like that. Guilty as charged. Yep. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're all that way. So Did he catch you there? Yeah. <laughs> Twice. Um, so uh, one of the changes about modules is that it has actually changed what it means to pound include something if what you're pound including happens to happens to be a module. Then you uh, just change right. the meaning of pound include. So this and is something that yes. people need to be aware of, right? I don't know that they necessarily need to be aware of it because it's something that – they had per that, that implementations had the permission to do already. So uh, there's an old talk uh, in I guess it's in a CPP con that Richard Smith did, where he's basically talking about Clang modules. And early on, he is saying that this is a C++ 98 conforming modules implementation, and if the 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 module stuff only works if your header is appropriately item potent to where and and well behaved and so if your headers were well behaved before it shouldn't matter whether it's a module or not well but now, the, but yeah. the thing is that there are people who will be in a situation where they have a flag set where they do something and then say okay now include it and i'm including it in the test mode or i'm including it in the little indian mode or whatever so it actually you know you 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 are expecting the import to, or the include, sorry, to be uh, to be reliant on your macro state, right. right? And those would be cases of headers that aren't well behaved, uh, and so a Clang module wouldn't have worked for those. Right. Uh, so, although arguably nobody yeah. would turn that into a module. In other words, if I have a library, I have a header, and I've specifically, because that's of course what you will have done. You will have said, you know. If test, generate this code, else generate this code or whatever. Um, so I would never turn that into a module because I've just screwed all my users, right? Because Well, you wouldn't turn it into a module unless it's the standard library, where we do that all the time. Iterator debugging levels uh, is, is a common one, yeah. uh, where you change the iterator debugging level on Visual Studio, and it changes the, the layout of a bunch of classes. Uh, so that's one place where... Hopefully you were doing that like on the command line versus in a header <laughs> file, uh, turning on and off exceptions, not technically conformant, but that's something that people people do. There's a bunch of these switches, but hopefully you're doing those on the command line versus pound defining that macro at the top of your file and hoping that it flows into vector. Uh, Colby Pike in, in the chat is saying that um, legacy header imports do put in macros. As of P1103. That they export the macros. 
that, that they provide macros. Uh, macros don't flow in, but they do flow out. He seems to think that they also go in. That is my understanding. Okay. All right. So if you have a library where you're exporting a function that's that's entirely a macro function for whatever reason, which, you know, it's not that uncommon. Um, I, I, I saw someone talking about um, the use of the preprocessor and saying that we're, with the introduction of, of modules, we're really close to... Uh, to being able to get rid of the preprocessor in every use case. And I'm just astounded by anybody who thinks that because I've seen use cases of the, of the preprocessor that I thought were valid use cases that were just so, you know, long tail. That's what I'm saying. You know, what's the major case of the preprocessor? Well, of course, pound include. Oh, what's next? Well, people doing, you know, pound defines of constants and, and what else? Oh, people writing macros instead of inline functions, right? So, yeah, we've, we've hit the big cases, but there is a long tail of of cases, and I'll share mine. Not that it's that important. That's kind of my point: is that there's what I'm going to tell you. There's a there's a dozen, maybe a hundred of these kinds of things. But I worked on a on a project where we were adding um, initializer lists to the, a container interface. So imagine a C plus plus ninety eight container interface, and now we want to add initializer list support to it. And that was all fine. I don't need macros for that, but I need to test it. And it turns out that you cannot create an initializer list object. Um, you can create an empty one. The default constructor for initializer list will create an empty one. But if you actually want to put something in an initializer list, the only way to do that is to actually write code that says, here's my initializer list with these values in it. You can't programmatically create an initializer list. So how are we going to test it? Well, I created this ungodly macro generating kind of thing so that I could say, okay, test this case and test this case and test this case. Now, one way of solving this problem is to say, well, now you can, in fact, create initializer lists with all these types. But why complicate the language even more and instead just admit there's there's a near infinite number of macros uses that are so minor that they're not worth fixing and just acknowledge that we're never going to get rid of the preprocessor. There just there are dozens and dozens of perfectly legitimate reasons for the preprocessor. But those are minor I mean minor use cases. I, you know there's there's got to be thousands and thousands of projects that never are using any of those. But every once in a while you'll come across something at least in in my experience I've seen uses of the preprocessor that are really innovative and then you think about it and say I don't know how else you do this. There's no better way to do this. And that we'll never get rid of all those. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of it in the standard because of a lot of these long tail issues that you're talking about. Yeah. But I mean, there are alternatives that are also gross. Uh, an alternative is you could write a program that generates your program for you, which is kind of what the pro- uh, the preprocessor is doing. Right, uh, right, 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 right. But you could move that somewhere else. But that right. also has the same kind of toolability problems, which are one of the things that so, so there's just general grossness, which people tend to object to with macros, but there's also the legitimate toolability uh, side of things where, okay, I want to rename all my variables that look like that, that, that uh, I want to rename all my John Kalb variables uh, to something else. Uh, so 
let me search all my source code and, and replace them. Oh, well, you missed this spot because we did token pasting where we had John underscore and we pasted it to Calb. How am I going to f write a tool that, that, that fixes that? And, yeah. well, you're not. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully we can make it to where those cases are very rare and so that tools work much more reliably. And yeah. so by modules help along, uh, with that a lot to where at least – your headers aren't poisoning the well for everyone else. You can right. look at your file in much more isolation. Right. And I don't want to be misinterpreted. I'm not advocating the use of the preprocessor. I'm simply saying that as a practical matter, we'll never be able to get rid of it. But I'm absolutely on board with, you know, do not use pound defines instead of constants. Do not use uh, macros instead of inline functions. There's, there's a lot of things that where we can write code better than using the preprocessor. And we should, at every opportunity, we should embrace that because of toolability, because of, you know, readability, um, reliability, portability, all these wonderful things. Um, I'm just, I'm just saying that, yeah, I don't think we're ready to say goodbye to the preprocessor in any, any version of the language that I anticipate. <laughs> I've always kind of wondered, so when a new feature is introduced, one of the things that people look at is how many different things does this feature solve? How, how many different use cases does this feature solve? And through that lens, if we were to introduce the preprocessor today, wow, it solves an awful lot of things. <laughs> Would we be happy with the, with the preprocessor if we were introducing it today? And I want to say no, we wouldn't be, but still, just the amounts of things that – the, the amount of ways you can save yourself and, you know, shoot off your foot yeah. with the preprocessor yeah. is just amazing. I was going to say, it needs to be the net number of problems that it solves. So <laughs> subtracting all the problems that it causes. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. so um, so what is the we, – we talked a little bit about – you said you like the end state. You're concerned about you're, – you're concerned about the, the, the path to get there. And part of it is because you were saying that our build tools – a lot of them may not be able to handle handle the directed acyclical graph, as you put it. But but the more complicated requirements of being able to to live in a modules world, right? But right, this is kind of to me, it's kind of similar to you know there were lots and lots of C compilers. It's just not that astoundingly difficult to write a, a C compiler. It may be really hard to write a good one, but it but there were lots of C compilers. There's not very many C plus plus compilers. C plus plus is a language just you know, orders of magnitude more complicated. So, uh, so we have fewer compilers. Maybe we'll see the same thing with build tools, which is that, you know, right now there's a lot of different, I mean, how hard is it to write a build tool? It's hard to write a good one, but you know, how hard is it to write a build tool, right? Well, it may just be that, no, no, the, the, the bottom rung on that ladder has now gone way higher and writing a, a build tool that can handle modules is, is a bigger deal. And it might mean, as you say, this crisis might actually have the benefit that we focus on a smaller number of build tools and get get closer to where I'd like to be, which is to have some kind of package management system that's just accepted and you just, you know, Perl, you do CPAN and you, that solves, it's just the accepted way to do it. I'd love to be in that world, right? We're a long way from that. I think that's the biggest single technical problem we face is, is the package management issue. Agreed that package management is where we want to go. Uh, I guess I will say that a difference between 
the C to C++ migration and the build migration though is that for the C to C++ migration, if I had conforming C code, then I could mostly switch out compilers and it not be super terrible expensive because my code continues to work in the old compiler and the new compiler. I know that's not 100% true, but it's largely yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, if I want to take my build system, though, that is currently, say, SCONS, and I want to migrate to CMake, that's a substantially larger investment. Uh, and I kind of have to pay that the first time. Well, maybe not necessarily the first time, but the second or third time I add a module uh, or use a library that uses modules, I really need to start paying that cost then. And it's hard to separate. Uh, it's hard to time that appropriately. What if I've got a, a software release out there and suddenly we've discovered that there's a security vulnerability and the only release that fixes that security vulnerability, well, that's the uh, the the version that introduced modules. Well, it looks like you're going to be backporting a change out of that modules side of thing because that's a really tough thing to just jump on immediately. Uh, so that, and that, that first jump cost is really what concerns me. We may be in a situation where, you know, I've, I felt for a very long time that people were not using 11 and 14. They were still trapped in the 98 world. just a long time before people updated. But I get the feeling now that having paid the price to make the, the update to 11, they've been more likely to do 14. And I think people are, again, this is a generalization, but I kind of feel like, but we may be hitting, we may hit a wall now with, with 20 where people are saying, no, we can't go to 20 because our build tools just won't support modules. And so the compiler might be okay, but, but we, you know, our project is locked in because we aren't willing to pay that price yet, or we haven't paid that price yet. Um, it's, you know, when you're language lovers, like, well, like those of us and probably our audience, we all want the latest and greatest tool, but for an awful lot of people, they're interested in whatever gameplay techniques or graphic techniques or encryption techniques and having the latest and greatest, you know, C feature, eh, it's not that big a deal to them. And that has the, also the ability to fraction, fraction the market, right? Because you, you start to have people who live in the, as we still have lots and lots of people still live in the 98 world. I mean, there just are a lot of people who still haven't moved to 11. Um, I think we talk about fewer of them because none of those people are showing up at the standards meetings. Most of those people are not showing up at conferences. They're not writing blog posts and stuff. I mean, they're, they're true dark matter programmers, but I'm sure there are still millions of people who are, you know, my heart goes out to them, who are in that, who are in that situation. And we may be, we may find out that, that 20 is also a wall that's really hard for people to climb over because it doesn't just require them to go back and look at some code changes they need to make. It may require them to take a look at, at bill systems, which they don't want to touch because you know, this has been worked on by a lot of people who aren't here anymore. And, we don't know how it works. And it's like, no, 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 you just check your code in and you hit this build script and, and then you stand back. Um, so, yeah, let me step away from the doom and gloom for a moment. Uh, so one of the things that came out of Kona was uh, SG15, the tooling study group, is going to be writing a technical report uh, to deal with 
tooling and modules. So one of the big things that we hope to get out of that technical report is kind of a set of guidelines for what compiler vendors should do, uh, what build systems should do, what library writers should do in order to play nice in a modules world. And so we may be able to come up with enough stuff to, with techniques and guidelines to where it won't be a huge uh, pain. And so that's one of the things that I'm looking at a lot is trying to figure out how we can make the migration easy for people that are stuck on a bad build system. Uh, other people are looking at how to make an awesome build system. Uh, and I think those are both very important paths to look at uh, because we want to take it full advantage of modules, not just the isolation for macros and whatnot, but also the uh, improved build throughput uh, and uh, build times and all of that that you can potentially get out of modules. And that's where they're looking. Uh, so. I have, uh, I'm very hopeful that this technical report that we're working on will be able to come up with something to guide all of these different stakeholders into something that works and makes the transition from C++ 17 to 20, hopefully we can make it to where it's about as expensive as the transition from 14 to 17. Uh, it's not going to be free because there's always little things that break and you have to change flags in your compiler somewhere, but hopefully we can get the cost down to that order of magnitude. Is this also going to be a stepping stone to a package management solution? To some degree, we kind of, we've got to deal with the, the fire right now of <laughs> making with, uh, of, 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 okay, we've got all this new module stuff. We've got to figure out what to do with it. And so, we can be thinking in the back of our heads, how is this going to interact with package management down the road? But uh, its I don't think it's going to be our focus yet. Once we figure out modules, we all know that package management's something that we got to deal with. Uh, but uh, yeah, we, we, we've got to deal with what's in front of us first. Well, I, I got I to believe that, and this is an area, although I... As I said just a few minutes ago, I think this is our number one technical challenge in C++. It is an area in which I cannot contribute an answer at all. It is not my area. Um, but I got to believe that coming up with standards for how build systems do modules is, has got to make package management. You know, if if we have a more standardized approach to build systems, that's got to help package management, right? I mean, that's one of the problems you have with package management is that that people can be doing anything out there. And, and almost anything and you could do. possibly imagine somebody doing, somebody's doing it, right? Yep. And that's and, – and they, of course, don't want to change the way they have to do it just to adopt your silly package management. So the, uh, the last episode we recorded was just before Kona, and we were talking a bit about modules then and some of the concerns we had. And they, they mostly run up against this, this brick wall in the, in the committee process where uh, the, the committee can't really talk about – or can't really standardize anything to do with the um, file system or tooling or anything around the language, only the language itself. So this technical report seems to be the way we're addressing that by not making it part of the uh, the, the the standard wording, but a, a separate report that compiler vendors can choose to act on and mostly will. Is that is that the correct understanding? Uh, yes. So the technical report is basically a bunch of English words. It is not uh, It is not intended to be uh, 
technical specification or international specification. It, it, it isn't that the the rigor isn't that uh, doesn't have to be is is it doesn't have to be as thorough. Uh, we also have more of a luxury of since we don't have that uh, since we don't have to go through that much rigor or as much. We can also kind of exclude some areas possibly that uh, we wouldn't exclude otherwise. Like maybe I'm not promising, uh, but maybe we say, you know, if your operating system is really weird and doesn't look sufficiently like POSIX or Windows, maybe things you, you have to do a little bit more work. Maybe you have to figure out your own build system. Uh, but maybe we also figure out how to, how to make things work there. Uh, we, we also don't necessarily have to support all of the different corner cases that the international standard supports. Uh, if you want to do something terrible like name your module haha.py, we may not want to support that easily in a build system. Uh, so there, we get to give a lot of guidelines and it can be a quality of implementation issue on all the different parts of how well the pieces integrate if you don't follow those guidelines. So does the um, – what, what what is the study group? Is 15? SG15, yes. Do you – does it, I should say, does it have representation from – because if if you have – if you look in the standards committee, you're going to see people there from every standard library implementation, every compiler, but you're not necessarily seeing all the players needed in this part of the world. In other words, you know, one of the things to be concerned with is uh, people who ship Linux implementations. They they have uh, you know they have a, a stake in this. Um, there's lots of people uh, like you know the people who make build tools like CMake or whatever. I don't know that they're necessarily, maybe they are, but I don't know that they're necessarily at the standards committee because it's not their concern how C++, what's what's in the code. They just need to know how to tell the compilers to build it. And so that's what I'm wondering is, do you have the right set of players in the room? Uh, I think we've got a portion of the right players. Uh, I mean, more is always going to be welcome, but where they're the ones that do CMake. Uh, they've had various representatives, and right now uh, Ben Bokel, I think that's how you say his last name, uh, he's been one of the ones uh, leading the charge on how to make uh, the awesome build system. He's trying to make CMake go, go that way, uh, which is great for people using CMake. Uh, which is a lot of people. Yes. Um, uh, so then Renee... we've got other people, yeah, like Renee, who did uh, does did B2 uh, which is boost build system. We've got Boris. I can't remember his last name. Who does build two? Kolpakov. Uh, yes, uh, we, we've got several people that know build systems really well. Present. Uh, we. I don't think we have great uh, representation from some of the uh, system package managers right now. Well, that, but that's well, something that's, we're trying to get. That's what Renee has just said in the in the chat room. He said, uh, "This is quoting Renee." We are working on getting Linux distro representation. We definitely have build system and package manager representation. So, so that's yeah. very optimistic. Uh, that, you know, that's the challenge that we've had in the past few months that I think we're resolving now is that we actually didn't have all that much representation in SG15 from 
the compiler vendors that were implementing modules, and oh. that caused some of the hubbub at Kona. But I think we've sort of fixed that, so now we're communicating more frequently and better. Uh, so even within the umbrella of WG21, we've got so many study groups, so many things going on. It's easy for <laughs> the different people that to, to not realize what's either not realize what's going on or not have the time to be everywhere we would like them to be. Things get really complicated when you want to solve real world problems. Absolutely. Let's just keep all our problems theoretical and they get really easy to solve that way. <laughs> <laughs> in theory, at least. In theory, yeah. Well, in theory, um, there's no difference between theory and practice. So, um, do you have any? You mentioned some of your particular, your, your personal uh, papers. Is there anything in particular that you uh, want to call out that you're very pleased with its progress, or do you want to gripe and moan about something that didn't go the way you wanted? Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that's going on. I've uh, there, there's. I'm always impressed by like the stuff that uh, Jean Heed Manid, I think that's how you say his name, is working on, and he's got some, you know, pet projects, uh, some like stood in bed and things like that that I'm really paying attention to. But uh, there's, I'm basically going for to these meetings for these two big, uh, two big items, and then jumping in where I can. Yeah, Uh, so i contribute where i can but i can only be so many places at once and i haven't been too upset with the results of various votes okay well that's the way the system should work right <laughs> yep um so we probably need to start uh, start wrapping up did uh uh phil did you have any questions i kind of as always tend to dominate them <laughs> No, I, the, there are a couple of things that I wanted to talk about, and we talked about them, so I think we're good. So, okay, hold good. on, Ben. Oh, thanks. Speaking of of you talking, the, didn't you have a webinar last week? How did that go? That's true. Yeah, I was going to mention that, wasn't I? <laughs> I did a, uh, a webinar for JetBrains on uh, remote development, so different ways that you can be developing on one machine, um, and then either debugging remotely or actually remoting the development session itself over SSH. Uh, there's a few different ways you can do it. And C9 now supports quite a lot of uh, different approaches. Uh, so I did a few demos of those and uh, even um, developing on a, a Raspberry Pi from my uh, instance of C9 running on my Mac. So it was, it was quite fun. Well, I was, I was going to say this is a more and more common scenario where people are developing for servers mm-hmm. or developing for embedded devices or something like that, where the machine that you're doing the development on is not the machine that's going to ultimately run the code. And so you need to have some way of... Yeah. And obviously Raspberry Pi, it's, um, it's a bit of a stretch calling it embedded. Uh, it is in some respects, but actually the true embedded well, we're um, going to be getting much more involved in in the next uh, couple of versions of C-Line. So that's uh, a big thing to watch, uh, including the one that's going to be coming up in... Uh, in a few weeks so we'll talk more about that later but yeah you should watch the webinar it's fun okay all right yeah you'll make sure there's it's in the show notes right yes yes okay well thank you very much uh ben particularly for uh stepping in at the last minute uh it's great that we have the kind of audience that we have that we can reach out to a member of the audience and say uh you want to be on the show for a little while (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad to be here always glad to get a chance to stand up on my soapbox and tell people what, 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 what I want them to hear. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. Um, and I invite you now to join us in wishing everyone safe coding. So everyone safe coding, safe coding, safe coding. <laughs>